The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. Hi, good morning, Story City. My name is Sarah Wolf. Um, I've been attending Story City for about three years now. And today I have the honor of reading today's scripture that comes from Colossians chapter 1. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Apostle and apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> the word of the Lord, that's okay. Yeah, Thank you, Sarah. <clears throat> you may be seated. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> Notice that Sarah also did not read it in Japanese. That'll be, uh, that'll be next year, I guess. But uh, no, good morning, church. Uh, very excited and thankful to be uh, with you all uh, this morning um, to, to study God's word and to kick off our study in the book of Colossians. Also, really want to thank Samir. Samir has done seriously just an outstanding job. Uh, with the pastoral residence. Uh, It's coming to an end. It's been a 10-month process. Um, It's one of those things where I'm going to sincerely miss uh, our our time together, absolutely. And so um, starting off the book of Colossians, it's helpful to kind of gain a context, right, of the passage and of the letter itself. Uh, So knowing the context in Scripture is uh, really supremely important in interpreting the Bible as uh, scripture, you know, the Bible, all of the Bible was not written in a vacuum, you know, meaning that this letter was written to a church at a certain time and place in history for, for a reason, for a purpose. And so a recurring theme that we see uh, in scripture is how God continually warns and guards his church from false teaching, right? So this would be teaching that would cause a church to drift from the truth. And the setting context here um, is really not much different, uh, but Paul is actually writing this letter uh, from prison. So he's in prison with a few of his buddies, namely Timothy, we see that in verse 1, and also this guy named Epaphras we see in verse 7. So Paul actually did not plant the church in Colossae, but uh, he actually didn't even visit it. All right? So he's hearing a report from Epaphras, his buddy, in prison, and he's saying, hey, Epaphras, 
we heard about this church that was planted in Colossae. People are putting their faith in Jesus. So Paul's really pumped and excited about that. He's thankful for that. But he's also hearing a report from Epaphras that there's a wind of uh, false teaching that's kind of creeping into the church, right? And so ultimately the main purpose of this book is to combat false teaching with the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, that the gospel and salvation is Christ plus nothing. You notice the sermon series is Jesus over everything. Jesus is better than everything. That is, that's fit, right? Because Jesus is sufficient. There is no other truth, no other religious practices or teachings needed to help supplement Christ for salvation and for life. And so today we'll dig into the beginning portion of Paul's letter, which is verses uh, 1 through 14. And so before we do that, let's, um, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day, God. This is your day, God. Every day is your day. We thank you, God, that you speak to us, Lord, uh, through your word, through your son, Lord, that we can have life eternal through a relationship, King Jesus, Lord, with you. We pray, God, open up the hearts of many, Lord. Give me the words to speak, Lord God. I pray you bring glory, Lord, to you and all the things that we do. We pray for these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So, great. Three points will frame up our time this morning. First, I'm going to stop playing with this, I promise. Uh, three points will frame up our time this morning. First, thanksgiving to God for faith and truth. Second observation is faith and obedience. And then finally, even more thanksgiving to God. I'm not very poetic. Uh, I'll, you know, alliteration, I'll, I'll get better eventually here. So, Colossians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So here in verse 3, Paul here says that when he prays, he's giving thanks to God because he's heard that a church has been planted. People are putting their faith in Jesus. And this brings us to our first point, which is thanksgiving to God for faith and truth. And so faith, belief in the Bible is a, is a super big deal. It's the main component, really the only component or the only means by which a human being is saved. And so we can see this going all the way back to the very first, first book of the Bible where Abraham, the father of the faith, is where God says this, Genesis 15, 6. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, credited to him as righteousness. John 3, 16, you've no doubt heard this before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So now a church has been planted in Colossae. People are believing in Christ, but Paul is giving thanks to God. Why, like, why would he, you know, a lot of times we read over portions of scripture that are introductory like this, but we give thanks, though, to the person or individual who was responsible for the gift or the good done. So Paul gives thanks to God for people that are putting their faith in Jesus. And this is a profound truth that's communicated throughout all of scripture when it says that faith, belief, salvation from God is not something that you have to work up or we take a leap of faith, so to speak, but God gives the gift of faith, that God is the originator of man's saving faith, and therefore we thank God for the work that he did and is doing. 
Ephesians 2, 8 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is, a, this is really a very important and practical truth to grasp, because if we're saved by our own effort, by our own faith, by a decision that we made, then we would have something to, to boast about and say, hey, I've made the right decision. I have faith and you don't, so God, you, God, you owe me this. I've made the right call. And then furthermore, it would only be natural then to feel superior to others, to others who haven't made that, that right decision. We're looking down on them. And so really, ultimately here, the Bible, the gospel makes it clear that Christians have no grounds for boasting that God saves by grace through the gift of faith in him. And that's why Paul gives thanks to God here. Uh, so then a natural question would be, okay, well, when and how does God give this gift of faith? Well, God can certainly speak to and save any person in any way that he'd like, right? But the primary method, though, is when people hear and understand the gospel. We see this in verse 6 in our, in our text. Uh, and we see an example of this in Acts 16. So this is Paul and Luke together here in Acts 16, 13. says this, On the Sabbath day, we, Paul and Luke, went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. We have God opening up this woman's heart, and she, in turn, responding in faith. So certainly we pray that God would open the hearts of many in this church and in this city, even today, because ultimately this is actually an encouragement for evangelism, because we know that God works through his word, that he works through the gospel being proclaimed. We look for opportunities and doors for the word to be open. It says this in Colossians 4. So we train ourselves. We equip for the work of ministry. Our personal choices and our actions, they absolutely do matter, but we try our best for God, and then we relax, knowing that salvation is from the Lord. All this to say, we thank God for the work of faith and the work that he is doing in the world. This Thanksgiving prayer continues in verse 4. So we always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Notice that these are also treated and viewed as gifts of God, not virtues produced by people and faith in Christ Jesus. That this is faith in a person. This is not faith in an abstract thought, not the idea of, oh, you know, you just gotta have a little, it's gotta have a little faith as if all reason is shoved out the door. No, biblical faith, it's personal. It's faith in Jesus. And then, so when God gives this gift of faith in Jesus, it comes to expression in Christian love, meaning that there is a love for the church. There's a love for brothers and sisters in Christ. It's symptomatic of salvation. And 1 John 3 says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So there's faith and love. And lastly, there's hope, the hope laid up for you in heaven 
what Sarah read is reserved for you in heaven. I like that, I like that even, even better. But, um, so I don't know about you, but hope, at least in my little mind, or at least in our culture today, I, I, I hope, uh, it's, the meaning has kind of been hijacked, meaning I hope that the Dodgers will win the World Series, right? Or I hope that Cody Bellinger will get out of his two-year slump. It's like, dude, like, let's go. So I'm praying for you. No, but like, so it's I hope, right? It's like, it's, it's out there into the ether, right? You know, it's just, it's just, it's hopeful. It's not based in fact. You just hope that something good will, will happen, so to speak. Um, that is not biblical hope, though. Hope in the Bible is a certainty in the promises of God, that God is going to do and will do everything that he said he's going to do. So when Jesus tells you that he goes and prepares a place for you, we believe it. When forgiveness is offered, we trust him and we can. That's the hope laid up for you in heaven. So a question for application then, it's okay. Well, what are we? What are you placing your hope in? Are the things that we place our hope in, are they eternal things? For me personally, a lot of times I can put my hope in a career, that if I have this successful career, then I'll be satisfied, as if my job title is written on my tombstone, right? Or, I, or, or your IMDB resume, the URL is written on your tombstone. It won't be there, right? It's not, it's not there. So all this to say, we thank God for the gift of faith that leads to a hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So a question could be asked, okay, great, how do we get this hope? From where does it come from? It says in verse five here, so verses four through five, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this, of this hope, of all these things, you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel, that it's the gospel, it's the truth, it's knowledge that's producing faith, hope, and love. Because normally you associate faith, hope, and love, kind of like we talked about, they're, they're feelings. You know, hey, I feel hopeful, I, I feel loving, but Paul says that it's the facts, it's the truth, it's the gospel that's generating these things. So how can the truth generate these characteristics? And so we're going to answer that question. But before, we need to tackle a quick objection or call it problem uh, many people have with Christianity. And it could put it in a single word. It could be exclusivity, meaning that, hey, you know, you, you Christians, you're a little judgmental, but you also think that you have the truth. Like you have like a stranglehold on the truth. Everyone else is wrong, right? You're, you know, you're, you're right. Um, that's, you know, it's kind of offensive. Uh, but hey, guess what? Christianity is not the only exclusive faith. Judaism, Islam, Christianity, many Eastern religions, they're also uh, exclusive in nature. But what's interesting about this idea of truth is that the truth, by definition, is exclusive, right? So you can't have your version of the truth, and then I have my own version of the truth. Um, but it's true. Judaism, Islam, Christianity, uh, Eastern religions, they, they assert that their faith is exclusive, that they have the truth. And so this needs a lot of people to say, you know, hey, you know, most of these major religions, they're really kind of all the same. They're just kind of superficially different. Yeah, you know, Jesus is, you know, he's kind of on the periphery, but, you know, all the core conduct and things of that nature, it's kind of all the same. Well, that, that person has not heard nor understood the gospel. Uh, Judaism, Islam, many religions of the world are truly religions and religious because they teach 
in one way or another that if you perform good works, that if you're a good person, then God will let you in, right? So attending to the proper religious rituals, uh, you know, going to temple, giving money, praying, you know, every so often, you know, then you'll have a right standing with God and then and you'll earn God's favor and, and then God will, God will let you in. But your good deeds need to outweigh your bad deeds. Uh, and so we could call this the uh, moral improvement theory, but the gospel Christianity actually teaches the exact opposite, right? The gospel tells us that man, you and I, are not inherently good. Nor can we do good works to earn God's favor, right? That we, by nature, the Bible calls us children of wrath, that there is a deep-seated evil in our hearts and that we cannot cure it in and of ourselves. So then what, what could possibly be the solution? How can we have faith, love, and hope like it talks about here in, in verse 5? Well, the solution is the gospel, we could not and cannot earn or achieve salvation, that we cannot achieve God's holiness, that we don't work to earn our Father's love. But God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the forgiveness and atonement of sins, and then rose again from the dead. And by confessing your sin, by believing in his name, that you will be saved, that you and I have all broken God's law, but Jesus Paid to fine. So notice that the gospel is all about what God has done and accomplished. So we don't put our faith or hope in ourselves. We put our hope in Christ. Religion says, I obey. I am a good person. Therefore, I'm accepted. The gospel says, Jesus says, it is finished. I'm accepted and forgiven in Christ. Therefore, I obey. You notice there's a massive difference there. And so really the questions that we, that we should be asking are how do we account for reality? To where do we go for life's biggest questions? Meaning what actually is true? Who has created me? What is the meaning of life? How do I know the difference between right and wrong? What happens to me when I die? Did Jesus really die on the cross and did he really rise again from the dead? The gospel, which is absolutely true, says yes, he did do all of those things and it is offered to all of humanity. So we don't earn salvation or his love by working for it, but we simply admit our need by repenting from sin and putting our trust in Christ and that the gospel is all about what God has done. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. And you know, the gospel can literally be literally translated to mean good news, so what does the news do? What do newspapers do? There's a lot of, there's a lot of fake news out there. What do, the, what do newspapers do like 50 years ago? All right, well, hey, they reported the facts. Hey, Dodgers win the World Series. Okay, great. They just report what happened. Well, well the gospel is the, good, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christianity is empirically, historically true. That's what the gospels teach us, fact, because the authors literally saw you know, all of these things happen. So we're not taking a leap of faith. We asked earlier, how can the truth, though, generate the characteristics and emotions of faith, hope, and love? Well, would you truly hear and understand that the, go- the gospel, it changes and transforms your heart? When you see Jesus living the perfect life for you, dying the death that you personally deserve, rising again from the dead, well, when you hear and understand that, you, you want to place your faith in him. You see Jesus loving you on the cross. It fills your life with a love for God 
and a love for others. And then the gospel then promises a certain hope of eternity with God in heaven that you do not work for. Jesus says in John 8, 31 through 36, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we were offspring of Abraham and had never been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will become free? You're crazy. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Only in Christ can a soul be made free. You don't work for it. You receive it. So then with the church in mind, Paul transitions to a prayer for the church, which leads us to our second point, which is a prayer for faith and obedience, faith and obedience together. So if, you heard, if you're with me so far, you heard understood that the gospel is the good news of what God has done, that God saves by grace through the gift of faith in him, that Jesus has forgiven all my sin when I put my trust and faith in him. That is outstanding, truly. That, that is fantastic. I'm all, I'm all for you. So I can kind of live life any way that I would like, kind of knowing that I'm going to be you know, forgiven on the back end. You know, it's not that, not that big of a deal. Um, you, know, you know who actually understands this is the writer of Stranger, or thinks this way, rather, is the writer of Stranger Things. Who here has seen Stranger Things season four, episode one? Atlas, I, I preached on Wednesday at Atlas, the participation was 100%. I was like, I was thinking Burbank, this is like 70%, but not that, I mean, maybe like 20% here. So and anyhow, uh, so season four, episode one, Dustin, he's getting, all, he's the main character, he's getting D's and F's, right? His report card is terrible. Um, and then his, his brainiac girlfriend is, hacks into the computer system, and she's able to change the grades for him. But before she does that, she's going to change these Ds and Fs to As and A minuses, A pluses and stuff. She, before she does that, she looks at a statue of Jesus, and she goes, I'll just repent later. And, and then changes, you know, changes the grades. Say, hey, you know, I can kind of live any way that I like. You know, forgive, forgiveness is on the back end. It's like, that is not, that is not true. That is not, we, don't, we don't want to presume upon God's grace, right? That would be playing the hypocrite. So we see this starting in verse 9, this prayer for faith and obedience. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the prayer here essentially has two requests, the first of which we see in verse 9, that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so the word knowledge here in the New Testament is used specifically in reference to moral, God's moral or religious will. So the knowledge of his will has special reference to God's intention for the conduct of uh, the, the Christian life. So little note on God's will. Um, there are tr- the Bible communicates two types of God's will uh, in, in his word. Um, the Bible makes it clear that God does will all things to happen, that he is God, that he plans and executes everything according to his will and purpose. So this is often referred to as God's secret or sovereign will, but I've, in my own personal life, I've gotten very confused with this idea of God's will um, because I've sought God's will. And we're certainly called to seek counsel from the Lord, right, for decision-making and direction. But I often associate it with seeking God's wills of trying to find God's plan for my life, right, trying to discover God's secret plan or will as if to crack the mind of God. And that if I missed it, then I wouldn't be living in God's will. 
But what's important to note is that the Bible, in the Bible, we're never told to seek or find uh, God's will uh, in this way, as if he's hiding something from us. So rather, with further study, uh, you know, God's will, doing, finding God's will is made clear to us and that God's will is for his people to love him and to do his will. And we call this obedience or big word sanctification, which is simply an increase in personal holiness. First Thessalonians 4, 3 says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Here in, spe- in particular reference to sexual purity. First Thessalonians 5.14 says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, that God's will is clear. And this is the will of God that he's praying for in verse 9. Um, but just knowing the right things to do and then, you know, having a knowledge of God's will you know, isn't, isn't the goal here. It's given with practical intent so that one's conduct may be godly. You see in verse 10, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, that we're walking and living our lives in a way that is worthy of the Lord. This means to live our lives in a way that is commensurate with what the Lord has done for us. And, you know, let's see, the first part here is pleasing God, that Christians, we don't live to please ourselves. We want to please God with our lives. We want to advance his kingdom and not our own kingdom. We're surrendering our will for God's will, like Jesus prays in Matthew 6, Father, thy kingdom come. Father, thy will be done. We want to please the Lord. We want to please God with our lives. Um, and then bearing fruit, that we would be people rich in good works, to truly care for those around us, like Pastor Jared mentioned this morning. This is motivated by the gospel. It's meaning that God and King Jesus, you've been so generous to me. How could I not be generous to you? How can I be generous to other, other people? And this is motivated not by a selfish interest, but it's motivated by God's grace being real to us. So all these things taken together, a genuine faith accompanied by genuine repentance mean that God is changing your heart so that you want to obey him. You want to do the things that are pleasing to him. Because here's the deal, obedience, obeying God, following his will, it is not legalism. Legalism is I must obey to be accepted. It's a full-blown works-based salvation like we talked about earlier. The gospel tells us I'm accepted and forgiven in Christ. I'm loved by him. Therefore, I want to obey and do the things that are pleasing to him. A genuine faith is always authenticated by obedience to God and a life rich in good works. Jesus says this in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Tim Keller quotes that we're saved by faith alone, but not faith that remains alone. And this prayer uh, continues for faith and obedience in verse 11, that may you be strengthened with all power according to his, God's glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy 
that Paul prays and asks of this congregation and certainly ourselves that we're not strengthened by our own power, but according to God's power, by according to God's glorious might, that relationship with God is not self-empowered. We don't pick ourselves up by our bootstraps as if we're self-made people. Um, and this is really just an application, once again, an outworking of the gospel, that the call to repentance and faith is, like, is an acknowledgement that one is not autonomous. It says that, you know, I am not God. I am not strong. I am going to die one day, but I'm a sinner. But I need help. Not just a little help. I need someone to do this with and for me. And that's what the gospel provides. That's what Jesus came to do. And, uh, you know, this is in direct conflict, honestly, with the overriding philosophy we call it up today, which maybe is an outworking of the self esteem movement, but it says, hey, you are strong. You are awesome. You are perfect just the way that you are. Um, and we could spend a while doing a tactical takedown of this approach, but the Bible, uh, basic reason says that, that's not true. That's not true. So we're called to be strong, not by our might or power, but, but by God's. The life is hard, but by God's power, we will endure. Verse 12 continues with the prayer. It'll take us to our third and final point this morning. Even more thanksgiving to God. This is Colossians 1, 11 through 14. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Verse 12 and 13, Paul is giving thanks to the Father again. Why? Because of God's incredible salvation. You notice all these words, the, the first of which is qualification. Who here has ever applied for a job, and you literally on the website it says, like, qualifications, and you felt very underqualified, meaning that, um, hey, it's an entry-level position, and I'm graduating from school or whatever, and they want five years of experience, but it's entry-level. That doesn't make any sense. Or management, I have no management experience. I need to apply for this job. Um, the, I'm, not, I'm not qualified. I'm very underqualified. Well, do you think that you're qualified for God's kingdom? Do you think that you qualify for God's righteousness compared to God's holiness? I do not. And notice that it's not we who qualifies ourselves, but God qualifies his people. We don't qualify ourselves. God qualifies his people. The next word is an inheritance, that we're heirs. Well, does an heir work or do anything to receive that inheritance? No, they don't. We receive it. Deliverance. We're delivered from the domain of darkness and hell to heaven. When someone delivers the mail to your house, do you do anything? No. You, you receive it. So what's the point? Salvation, forgiveness, being included in God's kingdom, having your name written in the Lamb's book of life, being transferred from hell to heaven. It is wholly a work of God. That God is sovereign in salvation and just a natural conclusion of this is thanksgiving and praise given and directed completely to God. So what's interesting about the end of the passage here, and we'll wrap up with this, is that it tells us what Jesus does, what he brings to his people. Uh, it says in verse 13 and 14 that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Question for you, what do you think is the biggest issue in your life? Do you really think that you're 
a sinner. Because fundamentally, we all alike have to see our need, our need for forgiveness, our need for salvation. And even looking at the passage here, going back to verse 9, is you know, living our lives in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Well, do you live your life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord all the time? Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength all the time? Do you love your neighbor as yourself all the time? Human experience, our consciences says no. I, I definitely do not do that. And God confirms this in his word. He says in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, you know, it might be easy to say or think, well, hey, you know, I'm not that bad. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've done, I've done some things, right? I thought some things, but, yeah, I'm sure God judges on some kind of, God judges on some kind of sliding scale, uh, if you will, like a grading on a curve, um, but there is, there is no curve. Imagine for a minute, though, that you have a unique implant that's placed in your head. This isn't really even that far to the imagination, but this, there's a unique implant in your head. It records all of your thoughts, all the things that you think about, the things that you see, all the things that you do, and the words that you say. And then we're going to watch it on the big screen just from the past like, couple weeks here together. It would be mortifying. <laughs> do you know that the Bible, though, tells us that you are being recorded? You are being watched. Ecclesiastes 12, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, that there is a day of judgment coming, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Matthew 12, 36 says this, I tell you, in the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, that God sees you and that he knows you. Not just superficial knowledge, he knows you all the way down. So I don't know about you, but that is a terrifying thought to know that someone knows the most intimate parts and details of my entire life. And naturally leads me to think that God could never love a person like me. The Bible says, the gospel says, that's not true. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God knows you, and instead of rejecting you, he's made a way for you to be forgiven and say that Christ died for sinners, people just like you and me. Verse 14 in our text says that there is redemption, forgiveness of sins in Christ, and that's the offer, the gift of forgiveness, reconciliation, and eternal life with God. So do you see your need? Do you want to get saved? All you have to do is repent of your sin. You see your need. Repent of your sin against God. Believe and trust in Christ, and you will live. Romans 10.9 says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great salvation, God. That you, God, have qualified us. God, you transferred us. You've made us heirs, Lord God, of a, of a perfect gift and of forgiveness of sin and salvation, Lord, that we could never earn, but we receive it by faith in you, Lord. I pray that you'd open up the hearts of many. God, open up my heart uh, to see you and love you with all my heart, all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. God, we love you. We thank you for the goodness of your word. 
We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us, Jesus, in your name. Amen.